Welcome to Marketing Growth Conversations, a show about purposeful growth for the marketing community. We're connecting with marketing leaders to explore how they've found success in delivering growth for their businesses, teams, and careers. I'm your host, Michael Fasciano, an integrated marketing and global content leader. Like many of you, I've seen that growth for marketers is rarely a straight path. And yet with courage, strategic thinking, creativity, and grit, it's the game changer for many businesses and an incredibly rewarding career. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Growth Conversations. Chris Gillespie is founder and CEO of Fenwick Media, a studio for uncommonly clear writing and design, backed by research. Chris began his career in sales and marketing at B2B and technology companies such as AT&T and Marketo. He's a unique mix of business strategist, creative writer, and entrepreneur. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Yeah, it's fun to be on. And you're one of those awesome minds in the intersection of storytelling and building a business. So I'm thrilled to have you on. I'm very excited to chat today. So Chris, as founder and CEO of Fenwick Media, what trends are top of mind for you and your clients? What's shaping the expectations of content? What's shaping the expectations of how you deliver great work and, and partner together the right way? It, it's interesting to notice that it feels like content marketing has won in a way, right? Back in 2013, 2014, there's a lot of arguments about whether this was the way, and it now feels it is so much the way that all of our arguments about it are within the container that we all agree that producing useful things for buyers that are not always a hard sell is interesting that companies should build themselves into an authority on a topic and have an informational advantage such that when someone thinks email marketing, they think Marketo. So it feels like that idea has won. What's changing lately for us is people are questioning marketing as a whole. What is the utility and value of marketing? That's something I notice, especially talking to some of the clients who've been approached by recently is people looking to shake things up. And that if I had to guess, there's a couple of reasons for that. One there's always been a couple of unspoken secrets in content. One of them is that there's a massive amount of waste. A great number of the assets that are produced never see the light of day, never see more than one campaign. And people are, are especially in this time, as budgets are tight, rightfully asking which parts of this are actually serving us and which parts could be left behind without any loss. And it's a totally valid question. So we're seeing a lot of reevaluation along yeah. those lines that companies don't want the traditional playbook, which is also exciting to us because we're a small team and our interest is in doing something that achieves the outcome. We've been saying totally. lately, we're interested in, in the outcomes, not assets. And a client gave us feedback and he was like, well, okay, we still need the assets. And we agree. We're in love with the assets, but we're really focused on trying to do as little as we can to achieve the outcome. One client has three eBooks that we wrote for them. And it's still the top thing on their blog after five years. And our question is, how do we do that for everybody? How do we make this the last ebook that you ever needed? And I'm feeling more receptivity to that yeah. idea. And I'm curious that, to get your take on that. That's great and very consistent with what I've seen. What I'm encouraged to see is that the why behind content marketing is no longer really in question. It's more mm. how much and how do we do it the right way? And yeah. how do we track what success really looks like and make sense of it over time? That is a good place for content marketing to be in. Where that's going to evolve, frankly, is getting into the less exciting parts of content operations and frankly, having 
some type of consensus on how to track performance and analytics, which yeah. is a whole rabbit hole you can go down. And that even there, it's do you track content marketing performance at the asset level or the channel level or overall as a program, I tend to lean more towards the whole of the effort, not all the individual pieces. But you're right. There's also a big question about, do we really need 10, 20, 50, 100 assets in our program? Or can we do it with less assets, but higher quality. Let's just get it down to the five to seven most amazing assets that grab everyone's attention and hook them in rather than doing dozens upon dozens of them. So a lot of teams are having a lot more open discussion around quality over quantity, and also just being a lot more selective about what work is being done and how to do it the most efficient way possible. But I love what you said about how content marketing is one, because in a way it's, it is a, a fixture in the marketing mix now, and it's only going to get to be a discipline that is stronger, more efficient, more purposeful as the craft of content marketing evolves and matures. Yeah, I agree with that. So a client on the demand side told us that if the content function was to stop, they would just be the department of ads. They were like, we don't have anything to work with without this machine going and constantly churning out interesting ideas. One of their subject experts that we have featured on this publication that we built for them is now getting invited to speak at conferences. And so they've now generated the idea that, wow, we should make this person famous. And this wasn't a potential or an idea before the content and the strategy of having a place for him to share his ideas, but it does. When you've got a really good content production then it flows into an impact. When we were we were working with more startups several years ago, extremely tough for them to track this. And it was often a question of, are we going to track it? Or are we going to do the right thing, right? Are we going to focus on the stuff that's measurable? Or are we going to do the things that we know are really exciting to people? Yeah. And after eight years, we just have so many examples of extremely exciting outcomes that don't fit onto a dashboard. Clarissa on our team got involved in a webinar program, designing it. And she listened to everybody and she was like, what we should do before anything else is we should start this webinar with a mantra rather than the usual logistics and housekeeping. We're going to pause, which is going to be very interruptive to everybody who's used to just people launching in and have a mantra about how the people watching are enough. And people print that out and they frame it on their office walls and they send it to that client and that doesn't fit on a dashboard. But those are the things we're looking to achieve also within, like you said, measuring the whole program is the way to go about it. Cause you just yeah. can't know really aside from stopping it and testing what changed, how the content is influencing all the rest of the marketing. We all recognize that business today is also about relationships. Frankly, it always has been about relationships. Today, there's so many more digital platforms where looking at the metrics on everything from site to social platforms, to CRMs, that's really important. But also how do you quantify, for instance, when your head of sales has a really successful meeting because they were able to leave a high value point of view paper or ebook behind that led to a major partnership that yeah. doesn't always come through in the data, but when you're on the ground and you're seeing how these relationships develop that collateral, that perspective having a really clear story is what makes all the difference. Yeah. And and I would say right now we're hearing a lot of 
what I would call the creative types on the marketing teams who we tend to work directly with struggling to explain that because part of it, there's a, they're taking a long view. They're saying we can't possibly know all the ways this will benefit us, but we know we're going to aim for the highest quality. It's going to be precise, concise, interesting, useful, and then put it out there. And I can't tell you what it's going to do in two weeks or three months. Right. What's your, yeah. what's your take on how, how people well, my, my take on it and the way that I always set up the value and purpose of content marketing is to establish and expand relationships at scale. Right. Mm. And if you keep that perspective of a relationship in mind, what forms a high value relationship, what's the value of that to the getting a customer or buyer to the point where they trust you enough to really commit to a significant partnership. It starts perhaps in digital channels, but more often than not, it ends up being a, a phone call or a conversation where perhaps they read something or saw something that really piqued their interest or got them to think differently about the world. And that put that relationship on a trajectory to be really successful. Mm. And so my perspective on content marketing is you've got to, A, start from that lens of building relationships and thinking about how relationships form in parallel to the buyer's journey and how you're enabling that journey. And then really recognizing that a lot of marketers have a tendency to look at the world maybe a little too much through the lens of marketing channels and not enough mm. through the lens of the people that they're enabling who are going to close business. Right. Mm. So thinking about how are you getting as close as you possibly can to the new business team or the sales team, the customer success team, and how are you not only creating great content that reflects the the brand that you represent, but also enables all these people who are interfacing with clients day in and day out to be much more successful. Yeah. Yes. And I know we're going to get to, to talk about sales later on, but this is a great reminder. So I started in sales and I felt writing was one of the things that I did well in cold outreach. And then fast forward, maybe four or five years later, I'm doing content and I'm firmly in the writing world and think of myself as a writer and a creative first. And we got a project with a client where we were doing sales enablement for the product marketing team. And I wrote the sales enablement emails and, and the emails going out on behalf of the salespeople thinking... I have a superpower. I've been a salesperson before and we did testing and we asked the salespeople, what do you think of these emails? And they came back and they're honestly, they're a little creative, which they meant in a bad way. They were like, <laughs> yeah, you guys use puns. They're like, I would never use a pun. No one's going to open this. This is nonsense. It was a really good reminder how far I had drifted away from the direct yeah. sale. Right. And, and Ogilvy talks a lot about this in his book. He says, you're going to be a good copywriter, be a direct response copywriter first. Be in a world yeah. where your copy, you get immediate responses on whether it worked or not. And that is related to your income. That's how you learn. And that was a great reminder then. And I think continues to be a great reminder. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting story. And I celebrate creativity, but I also think that you've just got to always keep your thinking grounded in the context of the buyer's journey and in which contexts are buyers, sellers, consumers a lot more excited and turned on by creativity? And at what point in the customer journey are you really just trying to drive response yeah. and demand? And frankly, with all the intelligent tools out there, we'll probably get to a point where we can ideate many different versions, deploy many different versions, and really get into precise 
testing and learning to think about how you continue to drive creativity in all niches of the buyer's journey. So I celebrate your creativity in that story as well, but there's always that good, healthy dialogue to have with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And you said staying very, very narrowly focused on what is it the buyer is trying to accomplish, right? Because that is where a lot of emails go wrong. They're overly creative. They have a subject line that's punny and it only makes sense once of the context. So it's people within the company entertaining themselves rather than thinking about the buyer who's like, yeah, if you had just said what it was in the subject line, I might open right. that, but yep. it was too clever. So yep. it is a balance. So just diving a little deeper into our discussion, you're working with a lot of startups in the San Francisco Bay area. I imagine beyond the San Francisco area as well, nationally, what types of trends are you seeing with growth companies and technology firms specifically? Are they thinking a lot more about being really clear about their messaging? Are they thinking a lot more about doing more with less? What, what are you seeing? Yeah. They do more with less. That has, that is swept through for sure. I'm shocked at how many companies are doing brand identity right now. In a moment where it feels budgets are really, really tight, uh, there seems to be an impulse to invest in brand. And that to me feels new and it feels different than when I started this. B2B felt such a strange backwater compared to consumer companies. And I would read The Atlantic and I would look at the writing quality B2B companies and I would say, wow, there's just so much room to grow here. And I'm seeing that gap collapse Maybe part of it, and maybe this is a little bit of a tangent, but media has had such a hard time. Newspapers have had such a hard time. There are a lot of really smart people who ought to be in journalism or were in journalism that are now doing brand journalism because those barriers have dissolved somewhat. And so I look at some of the teams that are doing the content uh, and their editorial directors who previously worked at a newspaper. And so there's just a much higher, yeah, much higher capacity and understanding about the quality and how how big of a difference it can make for your startup to feel unique and memorable because yeah if you're if you're just the same blue color as everybody else and you're saying relatively the same things as everybody else every asset takes so much more work to promote let's shift gears a little to personal growth anchors mm -hmm. so complete this statement i originally became a marketer because blank i could not do sales <laughs> Okay. okay. Uh, and now you're doing amazing work with sellers. So it mm -hmm. comes full circle. It does. How do you define great marketing leadership today? Number one is they are a shield. Chaos is raining down on teams with the economy or the perception of the economy with budgets, with capital being expensive again. And the best thing a marketing leader today can do, I don't even think it is being the most visionary, the most exceptional, it's being a shield and protecting the creatives under you so that they can do creative things right yeah. now. And I'm writing an article about this. A lot of teams are burnt out and it's because a lot of leaders are not properly shielding their teams. And maybe those leaders even think, Hey, everyone should know about this, but it comes across as an initiative to do AI. So everyone on your team on top of everything they're already doing now has to also do AI and figure this out. And People are just overwhelmed. And the strongest leaders that I'm seeing in marketing right now are processing and absorbing everything that's coming in and then shielding their teams and saying, hey, guys, I know everything is changing. Keep doing what you're doing. Actually, keep this yeah. up for six months. We know we need to invest in that area. And when it's ready, I will tell you about the next thing. Yep. 
That makes a lot of sense. And in a word or sentence, modern marketing and great content marketing is a driver of growth by doing what? It's so easy for marketers to fall into thinking about the clicks and the views, right? You can talk relationships all you want, and then they turn to their dashboard and they're all of a sudden focused on what would be the wrong metrics. And that word brings back it's relationships. And what brands and content that have entered the world recently are really inspiring you and your team? Yeah. The one that is, I'm super biased, but our team with a friend of ours named Kristen at this startup named VoiceFlow created a publication. We're very excited about that because there's so many cool things that have come together around this. One, it's a conversation design startup and they had tens of thousands of people who wanted more from them. And it's a perfect opportunity to create someplace for them all to gather Danique on our team and man on our team led the project along with Kristen to name it, invent it, create it, design it, and now write it and grow it. And the numbers coming out of that are really fun. And it's a great reminder that when you do give creatives control to go get people excited about something, it can go really, really well. And the conversations that initiated that were not about likes or views or clicks. It really was about how do we form a relationship with all of these people and how do we help them form relationships too? I really like that. And I've done similar brand publications at places like IBM. When you can create a forum through content that really drives pride is something that can be cherished by audiences as something that is really, as we used to do with magazines, that tactile nature of a great magazine is is just something that we know is still possible. And maybe it's not always going to be magazines doing it. Maybe it's it's great brands moving forward. Speaking of publications, you, you said design adjacent type work. I know you've made a big push to bring designers onto your team. And yeah. I'm curious, what types of evolutions has that required of your business and new ways of working? So the way we now think about it, is that design and writing are integrated to the degree where we now do not offer them separately. You can hire Fenwick to create content and we will decide whether a writer, a designer, or both are involved because the thing we run into constantly is we'll find that people want to hire us for the writing and then they want to, for a variety of reasons, use their in-house design team or they want to outsource it to someone else or they already have a contract with an agency that provides the design. When you split things up like that, you're just, you're fracturing all the ideas. I have this experience early on of creating an ebook where we write it, it's moody. There's a very clear written theme. And then a designer, probably not given enough time, then drops it into a template from an online marketplace. And the result is entirely incoherent. It just does not say visually what it's saying with words. And what we found is that it's a very long path in that we'll get requests for writing. And if we return it as writing and design work, that's that's the answer to the question. And yeah. a client may want to use their internal team, but if their internal designer is a product designer and they don't know layouts, again, it's going to fracture the ideas. And so we really need both the writer and the designer, whether there are people or other people working together from the outset on the whole thing. So we're speaking to both halves of people's brains. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And we know that digital platforms, social platforms, the era and age of Instagram and threads and TikTok, it's all multimedia now. So you have to find a way to be visual in some way that feels 
authentic to your brand, to your storytelling, and really gives your content a differentiated identity. So that makes total sense to me. Yeah. Cool. So now digging into some growth breakthroughs, some moments where maybe you really started to hit your stride or you're working at a, a new level or perhaps a, a lasting lesson was learned. The sales experience has been invaluable. And it was there was probably nothing that could have better prepared me to help co-found Fenwick. And the reason is when you're in sales, you have maybe the best perspective of anybody of how businesses work, because how they work is how they make money. And you're there to figure out how to help your company make money by helping other companies make money. And that view on everything I find is absolutely unique. And I find that it's something that's not shared when you start in a different department that is just one of the pieces. Sales has no choice but to understand everything. If you're the one selling the software, you're running into the product team's office saying, guys, we need a feature. And you're having to learn how difficult it is for them to think about adding that feature in when they're prioritizing an entire roadmap. You have to work with marketing, which is how I got my start was going down to the marketing team saying, hey, I've got this one client. It's a subscription box company. Can we please get an article up to show them that we understand them? And the marketing team saying, listen, you have no idea how much we have going on. Here's a pen. Why don't you do it yourself? Sales is the best training for understanding all of that. And also on how helping to find new business and qualify new business. And I feel like the place that where we had a lot of inbound interest because the marketing, the product were so good, it allowed me to finally practice real sales, which a lot of the times means saying no. You're trying to find a customer that's going to be long-term valuable. And sometimes the people who could be a quick deal are going to be a nightmare to implement. And I really got to got to feel the luxury of having enough inbound interest to realize my job was not to get anybody possible to sign the contracts, but the right people to sign the contracts. And that has directly affected how we've tried to build Fenwick, which is that we do a lot of saying no if we're not the right fit for something because we're looking six months, 12 months down the line at how it's going to go. And you don't want to take on bad business for both their sake and yours. So we do a lot of a lot of qualifying upfront to make sure that it's actually going to do what they hope it does. Yep. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense because it also matters that you're living up to your brand purpose of doing high quality work. And if you're buried in business, that's not interested in that, that's not good for your business. Right. Um, nor theirs. Okay, cool. So let's let's shift gears a bit. Tell us about a signature growth moment that you often come back to as a marketing leader. How did it help the business? How does it still shape you as a leader today? Hmm. Probably this year. This year has been the biggest growth moment. The the engine that Fenwick had built worked really well for a world that ceased to exist as of January of this year. So we've been inbound entirely, perfectly referral-based for five years now, and I hadn't had to do any outbound, which meant that I hadn't really had to think a lot about what our customers were going through. Obviously, I thought about it once we were in the engagement, but it's given me a really deep empathy for how tough it is right now being a marketer, how many people that I know who are extremely talented, who are looking right now, and they're looking and running into job opportunities where it's seven roles in one where a startup is, hey, here's the deal, is we need you to run PR, also content, also demand, also what's your experience in SEO, also we need someone to do sales enablement. And it's tough being a marketer. That's the biggest growth moment of this year is really getting to empathize through all the conversations that I've had with everybody who is looking and also starting to do outbound with Fenwick to 
build connections with customers that weren't coming to us, who we yep. want to go out to because we know we could do really good work with them. Thank you for sharing that. And I completely agree that I'm seeing it across the board with incredible leaders, top talent, firms that you would expect are always ready to put resources behind anything. Everyone's feeling that pinch right now. Yeah. And in the spirit of marketing growth conversations, I like that you're taking a growth mindset to the challenges that everyone's feeling right now. Because that was frankly what inspired me to start this podcast is mm. with every great challenge that pushes you, you can either run away from it or you can lean into it and become a better marketer and leader because of it. Right. Um, and that's exactly... As we look at a lot of our customers too, pivoting, having to change, we've never really thought about pivoting before. And what Fenric does at its core has not changed and will not change. We're writers and designers. How we package that is changing a lot uh, in yep. response to what's happening right now. So how can we be adaptive and responsive to what people are doing rather than continue to, no matter what a client asks of us, it will come back to writing and design. But how do we spin that in a way that they can recognize that that's the thing that they need right now when they're in scarcity mindset and they're not looking for a writer or a designer. They're looking for a fix to this thing. We can pack it. That is what we do. We're going to call it that thing to help bring those people back into the fold where we can we can meaningfully help them yeah. get through that moment. So yeah, it's definitely been a growth moment. Well, and this is actually a recurring theme that I've been having conversations around with marketers is marketers also, they're obviously very skilled at helping drive growth for businesses, positioning businesses, doing what it takes both inbound and outbound to drive opportunity. But then when it comes to marketers doing it for themselves yeah, or for their so own businesses, there are yeah. deers in the headlights sometimes. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. in a weird way, and it sounds like maybe you've been experiencing this. I've certainly experienced it myself. It forces you to actually take your own medicine and put into practice the things that you talk about, not just for others, but for yourself. And what I've found in the process is, is I've actually really gotten into an experimentation mindset where I'm taking a lot of the things and the principles that I always talk about, but I'm putting them into practice regularly for myself and being able to really get into the nuanced detail of what I'm seeing working better just by doing it. Yeah. It's, it's so funny you mentioned that because I've had that conversation so many times recently of these marketers who are so bold and aggressive when they're promoting a product and when they're promoting themselves, nothing. They just cannot even begin, right? Because there, there's, for really good ones, a lot of humility there where yeah. when they're doing it on behalf of others, they've got a system, they've got a methodology for themselves. Yeah, really, really tough. Well, and it, it puts you again, more into the mindset of a client and you're like, okay, well, if I'm telling a client to do this and now I'm telling myself to do this, maybe some of these things that I'm thinking about a little extra carefully are the things the client's also thinking a little extra carefully about. So you, it, it gives you a little more empathy all around and it puts you in a better position to build those relationships. Yeah. Cool. So I'm curious just in the spirit of what you're finding has been working well at Fenwick, are there any great, exciting success stories of growth that you've found working with some of the Fenwick clients? Yeah. Pathways is the big, exciting one recently. Another one that we're working with a very large management consultancy firm. And this is my favorite marketing story of all time, because maybe in 2018, I come from working at Marketo, which is marketing automation, which is a fancy word for sending a lot of email. 
And I love email as a container because there's so much potential for it to feel personal. And I find it hilarious how many times people declare it dead because there's so many channels and email is a consistent thing. It's a unique identifier. Everybody has one. We can reach you there. And it still feels like a one-to-one transaction. So even if it's the CEO of a company who obviously didn't write the, the email himself or herself, it goes to somebody that feels it was one-to-one. And so in 2018, I studied newsletters to try to create our own newsletter And I studied 100 of them. I signed up for all of them, kept all the results in a spreadsheet, how many bounced, how many went to spam and put together a study that we published. And I put it out there and I wrote about it a little bit and basically forgot about it. And four years later, one of the biggest management consultancies in the world came back and said, hey, we found your white paper. Mind you, nobody had said anything about it in this entire time. And we had implemented bits of it for clients here and there, but nobody had engaged with it intellectually in the way that I had hoped that they would. Like this is a philosophy for how to treat the inbox as a homepage and to build a lot of trust within that experience. And they came back and they got it completely. And it was really fun recently to get catapulted into their world and join their team to then go repeat that study and do it again through their lens and come out with some very directive and controversial findings, for example, they had been working really hard to get the length of the email down as much as possible. You know, like we get it below 250 words. That's ideal. People skim these days. So we go interview a bunch of executives who are their ideal buyer. And we ask them, what are you reading? Show it to me. Why do you this one? You want to guess what the average length of an email that they read is? Uh, it was a bit more in depth, a thousand, 2000 words. Yeah. It's 2,200 words long. Wow. Yeah. And if you if you go back and you copy paste these emails, go look at Morning Brew, for example, it's yeah. usually over over 2000 words and people don't get that. Two things to that. One, the writing is really good and they're very focused on delivering a lot of value with every single line. Two, the design is excellent and you just can't tell that it is that long. And so we helped right. them do a total reframe on the, the purpose of email. And granted, yeah. they had a lot of these ideas going into the project that they wanted to reinvent because they're sending all this communication to all these CEOs. And they had been in the convention of that first white paper I put together. I created archetypes and they were the forwarder archetype. Email is just a way to send links to get you to our blog. It has no other purpose, right? Here's the thumbnail, please click go there. And we help them rethink email, not as a channel, but as content. So yeah, if you're focused on CEOs, you have to recognize that that is going to be one of the most sophisticated, savvy audiences that you can possibly try to target. And so they're not looking for fluff. They're not looking for clickbait. They're looking for a meaningful, substantive point of view on critical topics. And that's part of what's so exciting about being part of the management consultancy team right now is that they, they're at the forefront of almost everything. So it's all these things that we want from clients. They typify most of it. They have some of the smartest people in all of these different fields producing truly original ideas. And the email program, in comparison to how good all the ideas were, it was anemic. And so we got to draw from all this great stuff they already do to then show them, hey, this is content and it should look like this and people should enjoy it and we can rewrite it in these ways. And then turn that into a program that we can hand over. So I'd say that's that's the other big, exciting one. It just goes to show marketing often is not about the short-term gains. It's about long-term wins. Yeah. Um, and in the year after I published that thing, I was kicking myself. Oh, what did we do spending thousands of dollars designing this? 
That's so funny. Man, talk about some of the smartest email marketers. It has been so fun to plug in and see they get it, right? Which is always the environment that Fender wants to come into. We talk about the quality and how we're so obsessed with the quality. It's so wonderful to work with people who understand so intrinsically that there needs to be no discussion around let's do higher quality work. They get it. It's how do we implement it? And that's why that project is so fun. Kudos to the team. That That's amazing. Again, it it is never going to be something that a team regrets to invest in quality. Right? Yeah. It's funny. More often than not, when you go for the quantity over quality, that's the moment where you just flame out <laughs> over yeah. time. But, but if you push early on in the process to do something really meaningful, really worth the audience's time, you're going to be so glad that you did that in the long run. To that point, it requires so much stewardship from that client to fight all the internal fights that they need to, to help everyone else understand that, right? The same way that I couldn't go to the CTO and tell them that, hey, we need to produce this feature. For some reason, everyone thinks that they are qualified to do marketing because they too can write words. And it takes so much effort from that, we'll call our champion inside of each of these different companies to be teaching everybody else quality matters a lot, that we can't shortcut this because here's what that looks like one to two years out is we will have spent all the money and we'll be wondering what happened rather than being in this world where the person that we featured on the new publication is getting speaking engagements based on that. That's what the quality investment looks like. And they have to know that and, and fight for that all the time. Well, and, and speaking to this notion of having to fight for quality, having to stand up for what you believe in, what are some of the common challenges with content marketing and creation that you're seeing clients wrestle with today? Hmm. Yeah. It's the content operations thing. It really is, right? Yeah. All of the, it's content operations and it's missed expectation. That's the number one thing. So what I've been thinking a lot about recently is that content marketing has won. Now everyone understands generally we produce useful things and put it out there for buyers there's still such a cognitive dissonance and expectation gap around how do we get there? We want to produce useful things for buyers. And most clients or most companies are a silent movie and nobody gets to talk and we just watch the actions. The result of that process usually is a very fluffy white paper, absolutely devoid of substance that people download and then go, oh, they were just capturing my email, right? So I'm interested in what happens in the in-between. How do we actually activate that? And if you took most companies' content production processes and looked at them and asked, what is this trying to produce? Quality is not on that list, right? right? They've got all these checks where they're like, well, we have to not make legal mad. We have to make sure PR feels included because they feel like they're not included in these things. This executive has strong feelings about this topic. So we have to insert what I'll call their wish word, which is the thing they've named this that they hope other people also use. And at the end of all of these checks and these reviews, which is a huge process to draw everyone through, the result is not quality. And I'm very right. interested in helping companies think about what's the purpose of that, call it a machine, what's the machine built to do? Because you're telling me that it's built for quality and then things go through it and they wind up derivative and normal and average and nothing that's going to break through and excite people. How do we retool the machine so yeah. that that machine the things that pop out the other side of, oh, that's original. I've never seen yeah, that. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And, and a lot of what you're speaking to, which I've also seen is you get to the point where it's who's actually in the driver's seat here because yeah. the content marketing teams often either don't have 
a clear lead who is able to take the red pen and make the decisions and decide when things are approved and ready to go live. And so there's a lot of finger pointing. Oh, well, that person needs to look at it first or that person. And until we have all 15 people signing off, we don't know when this thing is actually going to go live. But if you have someone, an editor in chief or a director of content or someone who is empowered to lead, but also ultimately accountable for the results, that is when you can start to see things really progress and become less diluted by committee and more having a clear point of view that's sharp and something that's worth paying attention to and spending time with. The other problem, similar to what you're saying, is content marketing teams have a really tough time saying no. And that's yeah. because there's just frankly a lot of politics in an organization. And the minute you have to say honestly, this isn't the priority among all the priorities we're juggling right now, or this idea, frankly, is not that great and worth our audience's time, or we don't have the resources and the time to do this very well. Or frankly, this idea just isn't developed. Yeah. You know, there's so many reasons why all the half-baked ideas that emerge across an organization need to be contained and corralled. And I've seen teams that have empowered content marketing leaders to have a critical point of view and hold firm to the standards and strategic ways of working that are going to lead to high quality content always being the output. And I've seen organizations that have not been willing at all to empower the marketing teams to have that critical point of view. And what ends up happening? The team spread thin across everything and doing a bad job at all of it. Yeah. People people end up doing as asked, which is not what the company needs. Right. Yeah. So I'd, I'd, and I'd be curious to know, I've always thought about that too. The content machine is really interesting because on the back end, it's a political tool too, right? So yeah. Who gets to become the thought leader on the team? We're going to choose somebody. Who is that person that gets chosen? I'd love to hear your, your perspective on how you've seen that be wielded ethically. And also it puts you in a position where you get to kingmake a little bit on the team. It's a little bit top down and bottom up, right? And the best way to navigate that, first of all, is to know who your senior stakeholders are and mm. make sure that if they're interested in taking a thought leadership perspective, that you're empowering them because ultimately they're empowering you. But part of it also, to my mind, is really creating a forum where there's representation across the organization and mm. you're creating a cadence where pre, during, and post an integrated editorial planning session, you're keeping people updated about all the ideas that are in development. You're inviting ideas. You're curating them back during that session and having a conversation amongst all stakeholders about what really are the best ideas here. How do mm. we take some ideas and bring them from good to great? How do we recruit subject matter experts to be a part of the concepts that we're greenlighting so that the consensus naturally builds and the partners naturally gravitate towards diving into um, an execution because they've seen how that idea has been conceived from the very beginning. So it's creating those forums where you're creating ongoing dialogue with stakeholders and subject matter experts over time, where that sense of a joint team, that's it's not just a marketing team. It's not just a, a product or a sales team. It's we're all coming together as an integrated team to create the best work together. Right. 
And yeah, to your point, those partners usually reveal themselves, right? There's certain subject experts are just excited about it and have a capacity to do this and have a, an ability to balance that with their other roles. And so they do, they do reveal themselves. So who wants to be part of that? Totally. Because content's a journey, but you don't just dip your toe in the water with content. You've got to be a part of that journey of seeing the big picture, seeing how a company's voice is coming together across a whole range of topics. And that's something that you would think that you want to be with the people who are most committed to that. It's funny you call that a journey too. If there's a maturity model, the very beginning of that journey is some senior executive at the company penning an article and everyone getting very excited about it and then putting out the first and single article and waiting for results, right? <laughs> I've seen that multiple times, but they've put in all this work and they're so excited. They're like, this is the article. This is the article that puts us on the map and nothing. And it takes a jaded while to be okay. There you go. Okay, Chris, how would you you know think about some of the best marketing advice or perhaps how would you distill some of the biggest growth moments as a marketing leader for our listeners? The best marketing advice. In sales, they say it's it's not a sales process until someone says no, right? If you're just an order taker and everyone always says yes, that's not sales. Sales is when someone says, no, I don't want to buy. And you then begin the process of trying to figure out why, help them unpack that. Are you really the best fit? And they're just believe something about you. It's not true. And in marketing, similarly, until you have had a direct response connection to the outcome with the buyer, it's not real marketing. And I would look for ways to get that, whether that means you can get little bits of that in owning the newsletter for a bit, go own the newsletter and see what it's like to be the one sending emails, getting responses and seeing unsubscribes go up and wonder, oh no, like that, that makes it real. And that cements that connection back to the buyer and gives you really good instincts to my mind is anchored in this idea of customer centricity. And if you mm -hmm. wanna be a successful marketer, content marketer, you've gotta be customer centric. You've gotta understand your customer, your buyer. And to the extent that you can get as close as possible and get feedback from customers, that's always gonna make you a lot more grounded in what they actually care about. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on the pod. I, I knew you'd have awesome perspectives and this is just a lot of fun. We're going to share this pod out with the community on LinkedIn and other forums such as the serial marketing community, the pros and content community with Notch. And I'm really excited to keep the conversation going there. Yeah, this is fun. I do it again. This is uh, a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Best of luck to you and Fenwick Media. Thanks so much, Mike.